While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. I remember getting time tested in school. We would all line up outside the nurse's office and get poked by a small white device that had four needles in it. I didn't know at the time, but each needle had some variation of tuberculosis antigen on it, and within a few days, the nurse would check our arms to see if there was a reaction from one of them. Best of my knowledge, nobody ever tested positive, and it was just a break in the day for us. However, tuberculosis is a serious disease. It can damage the lungs, kidneys, and even cause brain infections. It'll kill you. In the 1700s, it was called the White Plague due to the sufferer's pale complexions. You may also know it as consumption because it does seem to eat away from people from the inside out. There wasn't a treatment until 1943 when streptomycin was developed. Before that, the only treatment was isolation from others who could catch the disease, fresh air, good nutrition, and occasionally some sort of surgery. Patients were housed in sanitariums. The first one opened in Asheville, North Carolina in 1875. Of course, there was one in Northeast Georgia, too. This is Moving Through Georgia, and this week, we start with tuberculosis in the Alto TB Sanitarium and end up at Lee Arendale State Prison. Plans for a state tuberculosis hospital go back to the turn of the century. There's a newspaper article from 1909 discussing the potential site for the facility and the plans to send a commission to examine a little town called Alto. Alto, which is Italian for high, is about 1,400 feet above sea level, compared to 1,000 feet for Atlanta and 330 for Milledgeville. It was known for fresh mountain breezes, something they made sure to mention in ads designed to attract tourists. In 1910, $30,000 was allocated for construction and building of the sanitarium began. At the time, a newspaper notes that 15 out of 10,000 Georgians were infected with TB, and most didn't have the means to afford treatment. There were 257 acres set aside for the sanitarium, including a dairy and a garden. By 1911, the administration building and four dorms were complete and they were ready to house 50 patients. More would come. They would only accept curable cases. I don't know what they would have told the incurable to do when they turned them away. Late in 1911, the budget for the hospital was cut and it was decided that only 25% of the patients could be treated for free. The rest would pay $3.50 per week for treatment. And that treatment was rest and clean air. Even in cold weather, the patients would be brought out to breathe the air and rest. Some even slept outside. Naps were often mandatory. Average patient could spend about 11 months there, and although I couldn't find specific numbers for Alto, on average nationwide, 95% of patients that went to a tuberculosis sanitarium would recover. That's a great statistic, but remember, they only accepted curable cases. Recovery rates went up if the disease was detected in its early stages, which can only be done with a chest x-ray. 
Public health departments would have regular screenings every few months where people could come in and get x-rayed. I've read a few articles about this. There's one in which 330 people showed up one day to be examined and seven cases of TB were detected. So it was out there and it was not really uncommon. In most of those cases, the patients would also be screened for syphilis. And let me tell you, they found a lot more syphilis cases than tuberculosis. We'll get to that a little more later. In 1943, there were 600 patients, but it was difficult keeping staff at the facility. One newspaper article mentions that it was hard to get people to work in such a remote location, but a lot of it had to do with the war and the fact that medical personnel were needed in the army. Many hospitals were understaffed during the war, and it was hard to compete with well-paying defense jobs that sprang up. State officials began discussing closing the hospital, and the patients were transferred to Batty Hospital near Rome. So I had mentioned syphilis before. In the 40s, the facility was a center for treatment of that particular disease. In 1949, a thousand patients a month were traveling to Alto to be treated for syphilis. They stayed about a week and received penicillin. But again, they get started and all of a sudden the budget for the hospital starts to get cut, even though by 1950 they had already treated over 70,000 people. Now, the closing of the TB program and the syphilis program also had a lot to do with advances in drugs and medical treatment. Someone could be treated as an outpatient in a local hospital with modern drugs instead of traveling to Alto. In 1951, Governor Herman Talmadge announced that the Boys Industrial Training School in Tekoa would move to the now-empty facility. It was a school for incorrigible youth, all African-American boys, and as you may know, its most famous alumnus was James Brown. They didn't entirely close the facility in Tekoa, but a lot of boys were transferred to Alta. An article from 1953 describes preparations for Christmas at the prison, and it has 350 boys and 12 adults being held there. Read the papers from the 50s and early 60s, and you would think the prison was a normal reformatory, with Christmas plays, a marching band, and football games. Every inmate even took GED classes. As time passed and the population became more mixed between juveniles and adults, problems with violence became more apparent. According to the rules, they were supposed to be kept separate, but shared eating and showering facilities made that difficult, if not impossible. The place gained a reputation for violence, and in 2004, a decision was made to move the male prisoners to other facilities and make Alto a women's prison. By this time, the place had been officially named Lee Arendale Prison after a Georgia Board of Corrections chairman who had died in a plane crash. Unfortunately, the switchover didn't solve the violence problem. They still had trouble with gangs and violence, and people blamed understaffing and poor conditions. However, one notable positive program at the prison was the all-female fire department. They had been deployed not only through the community, but also to wildfires in South Georgia. Those inmates will leave the facility as fully trained and qualified firefighters. 
Okay, getting a little more serious. After 2005, Arendelle Prison was also the home of death row for women. Now, I could find three records of women being executed in Georgia. One's kind of questionable. The questionable one is a woman named Alice Riley. She was executed in Savannah for murdering a man named Will Wise. She had come over from Ireland and apparently worked for Wise, who had a reputation for being abusive. Whether he really abused Alice may or may not be true, but the story is that she conspired with her boyfriend Richard White and drowned Wise in the bathtub one night. The more dramatic versions of this story have White being hanged first, and then when Alice Riley's turn comes, she declared that she was pregnant. The hanging was delayed until she delivered the baby. That is apparently the first execution of a woman in Georgia, but technically before Georgia became a state. The next wouldn't be until 1945 when Lena Baker was executed for murdering Ernest Knight. Now her story is very different. In 1944, Lena Baker was actually forced out of her home by night and taken to a local mill. Baker tried to escape, and in the fight, she grabbed Knight's gun, which went off. Baker ran to town and informed the coroner about the accidental death, but instead she was arrested and put on trial for murder. They didn't question that she was abducted, they just prosecuted her for shooting Ernest Knight. She was found guilty and sentenced to die, still claiming it was self-defense. She died in the electric chair in 1945. Now, for what it's worth, she was pardoned in 2005, and the state declared that her execution was a grievous error. The last is a little more recent. Kelly Gissendanner conspired with her boyfriend to murder her husband in 1997. The boyfriend received a life sentence and testified against Gissendanner, claiming that she had organized everything. She was held at Arendelle and spent a lot of time there, but executed at a prison in Jackson by lethal injection in 2015. Just a reminder, Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast that focuses mostly on Northeast Georgia. If you like what you hear and would like other people to hear it, you could really help by leaving us five stars on whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. If you have any questions, concerns, or criticisms, movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. Or if you have any subjects you'd like to see explored on the podcast, a big thanks to Stan Crump, a good friend of the podcast, for suggesting Arendelle Prison and the Tuberculosis Sanitarium. The prison is now facing another transition. Over the next year, over a thousand prisoners will be transferred to a new prison in Telfair County, and Arendelle Prison will become Arendelle Transitional Center, housing 112 women in minimum security, kind of like a halfway program before release. And so far, they plan to keep all the staff they have now. The fire department should also continue. The element left for the old left hand around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.